0: before we move into into the Word. Father God, I want to thank you for your amazing, amazing goodness to us. Lord, we come before you this morning just thinking about the, the fact that you are the resurrected Savior, thinking about the fact that you are the one who has put the seal of the Spirit upon us, that we are marked out and owned by the God of the universe. We thank you for that. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, guide us and teach us as we open up uh, your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we uh, finished Jonah, sort of. I say sort of because Jonah ends very awkwardly. Uh, If you read Jonah for the first time, you'd go, what? What in the world is he talking about? I don't get. I don't get Jonah. But Jonah ends awkwardly for a reason. And the reason is that God wants us to confront ourselves about whether or not we have what I have called a Jonah spirit. A Jonah spirit says, it's all about me. All I care about is my personal peace and affluence and safety. I don't really care about anybody else. That's the Jonah spirit. And I'm convinced that the reason why Jonah ends awkwardly is he wants us to confront ourselves about whether or not we possess a Jonah spirit. Well, since we live in an age where we like things to be wrapped up a little bit, I thought I would wrap up the series in Jonah by looking at the antidote to the Jonah spirit. And I ransacked the New Testament and asked myself, who is it in the New Testament That receives a commission like Jonah that's risky and hard and does it and does it successfully and the answer to that question is the women at the scene of Jesus resurrection so we're gonna look at Matthew chapter 28 1 through 10 as the antidote to the Jonah spirit now, uh, to begin with, um, I want to well, have a little bit of fun with you to, to, to kind of set this up. I want you to think about who this person is that I am about to mention, and you'll see why in a moment. This person was born on September 13, 1857. His parents are Swiss-German immigrants. His life was very hard. He dropped out of school in fourth grade. Well, his mom said, you know what, I think what you need to do is learn how to make candy. So he learns how to make candy. He starts his first business, and it fails. He starts his second business, and it fails. He is completely undeterred. He decides to travel the United States and learn how to be an expert candy maker. He comes back to his hometown, and in short order, he does three things. Number one, he invents milk chocolate, like invents it, invents it. He invents milk chocolate. He invents milk chocolate. He uh, goes on to invent the candy bar, and you know him now as the inventor of the Hershey's Kiss. This is Milton S. Hershey. If you were to, if you were in his his fourth grade classroom just before he drops out of school, and you were to ask who's the most unlikely person to succeed in that fourth grade, who would you come up with? <laughs> Milton S. Hershey. Two-time failure in business comes back and, and I mean, what would life be without Hershey's Kisses? I mean, it's it's hard it's hard to envision. It's like. Like when Adam and Eve were created, he created Hershey's Kisses like on the, on the third tree in the Garden of Eden. They've just <laughs> always been there. You've never not had Hershey's Kisses. He's the inventor. Very unlikely person to do what he did. Here's, here's a second guy. This guy's also kind of interesting. His mom uh, was a cleaning lady. His dad worked in a factory. He grew up working um, in a horse-drawn milk cart in his particular city his other jobs were lifeguard and i love this one his his one of his jobs was he was a coffin polisher (laughs) a coffin polisher how'd you like to have that on your on your resume well he never made it to college like mr hershey and he uh one day picked up a job backstage at a london theater he got a bit part in the musical south pacific but for the next 10 years his career was pretty lackluster like it didn't go anywhere and then he got the part of a lifetime got the part of a lifetime he played James Bond now if you were looking at this guy who was a coffin polisher and you were to think this guy is going to become the highest paid actor on the face of the earth, would you have believed it? Mm, probably not. Probably not. This guy was in dire straits and pretty, pretty humble. One, one, one more. If you're going to receive the top spot in an entire country, what do you need to have on your resume for that top spot? Here's what you probably would not have on your resume. Fostering revolution in your country. Being in jail for 27 years, being a rock breaker. You probably know who this is Nelson Mandela. When Nelson Mandela ascended to power, he did not do what a lot of people could have done and maybe would have done, and that is destroy his enemies. Instead, he aimed for reconciliation. When he died, he was called the father of his country. Now, what's true about all three of those examples, these, all three, persevered significantly in obscurity. Milton S. Hershey was in big-time obscurity for about 15 or 20, eh, maybe less than 20 years. Sean Connery was also in acting obscurity for 10 years. Nelson Mandela in prison obscurity for 27 years. These folks persevered in the face of obscurity and what i'm convinced of is that the antidote to the jonah jonah spirit is is the obscurity of the women at the empty tomb i'll show you why in a second but whereas jonah had a demanding spirit and wanted to control who god gave his grace to do not god of the universe give you grace to the assyrians because they're bad people you can't do that you can give your grace to me but not to the Assyrians, whereas Jonah wanted to control God, the women willingly receive a commission from God that's hard, and that could have gotten them into significant trouble, and so we want to look at, at how people reverse the Jonah spirit that's in their lives, and let me just say, by the way, before we, we begin, every one of us in this room Maybe there's one or two who don't. But every one of us in this room has that Jonah spirit. God, I want to tell you who you can give your grace to and who you can't. We all have that. And I want to give you the antidote to it. First, first antidote, first question. Who gets the power? Who gets the power if you're going to do something significant for God? Who, does the, who gets the power? God loves to empower a different kind of person. He loves to empower not the high and mighty, but the humble and the ordinary. We get in Matthew 28, verse, verse 1. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Short verse and an amazing story. On Good Friday, uh, a group followed Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb that he owned outside the city walls. If you were there watching them walk, you would have sensed that they're walking very, very fast. Why are they walking fast? It's about, the Sabbath is about to occur. As soon as sundown occurs, the Sabbath occurs, and they had to get everything done before the Sabbath. Not having the time to do all the embalming and the anointing, they have a linen shroud that they wrap around the body They put it in the tomb, they pull out the the stopper, and the stone wheel rolls into place, and now the tomb is shut. Well, what the authorities did just a little while later is that they stretched a cord over that tomb, and in the ends of the cord, they affixed the cord in wa- and, and clay, and then they impressed the seal of Rome into that clay. Why did they do that? That seal of Rome was the official seal that said if you mess with this tomb, you are messing with Rome, and the penalty is death. And then the guards came, and the guards uh, made sure that nobody messed with, with that tomb. Now, The next day is Saturday, and on Saturday, even though it was the Sabbath, what the women did was they quietly prepared spices to anoint the body on the following day, which was Sunday. Well, these women had to do this carefully because, you know, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but they gathered the spices together, and at the next morning, on Sunday morning, they determined to meet at a prearranged place, and they're carrying their baskets full of spices and while they're heading to the tomb, three pretty incredible things take place. Number one, there is an earthquake. Historians tell us it was 5.2 on the Richter scale. Just kidding about that, but it was big enough that the women would have paused and stopped. Uh, I don't know if you saw a video of the earthquake in Ecuador, but uh, there was a. Ca- cameras are everywhere these days, right? And there was a camera looking down on the street, and when the earthquake came, you saw people like, like, you know, like they're on surfboards just, you know, kind of catching their balance. You can imagine the woman kind of catching their balance as the, as the earthquake comes. They exit the city, and while they're heading toward the, the, the tomb, um, an angel comes, The stone blows off the tomb, and Jesus himself walks out in newness of life. You can imagine uh, the response of the soldiers just bolting away from that tomb as as they see the stone just rolled away. I don't think it was rolled away like it was rolled right there. I think it was like away from the tomb because of the word that's used in the gospel of Mark. Now, the women don't know any of this yet. They're still walking, they're still walking their way toward the tomb. And I can imagine a conversation on the way to the tomb where they're saying, uh, like, who's going to roll that stone away? <laughs> we don't have the horsepower to roll that stone away. Uh, and besides, there's guards there. How are we going to navigate this whole thing? But when they round the bend in the trail, they get the shock of their life. Because there's a big gaping hole where they buried Jesus on Friday afternoon, and the stone is lying on the ground some feet away. Soldiers are nowhere to be found. They freeze in amazement. But here's the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that in just a moment, it's these women who are going to get the highest privilege imaginable. They're going to receive a commission from the resurrected Jesus. Now, I'm telling you, this was big. It was shocking in the ancient world that it would be this way. They're going to have the privilege of a lifetime because it's to them first that a a kind of commission comes. Now, let me pause for a second and tell you why this was so so radical. In the ancient world, women were not highly esteemed. Here's what the famous Aristotle said. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior. One rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. Now look, Aristotle was a brilliant philosopher, but did you know that he said this? Probably not. Why was this not a big deal in the ancient world? It's because everybody believed this. Everybody, it was just assumed in the ancient world. We take it for granted that we have female CEOs. We take it for granted that we have female athletes that are astonishingly well-trained and gifted and do their sport with excellence. We take that for granted. In the ancient world, that was inconceivable that that would take place. Elsewhere, Aristotle said she should consider that her husband's wishes are as laws appointed for her by divine will. Now, (laughs) Aristotle, this is like like the mentor to Alexander the Great. You know, Aristotle and Plato are featured, you know, in Leonardo da Vinci's School of Venice as these two great foundational philosophers. This was commonly thought in the ancient world, not just limited to Greek philosophy, the Jewish prayer book uh, on women, uh, said this. This is, what pe- this is what people read every morning. Uh, Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. Wow. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And that was a portion of their prayer every single morning. Can you imagine what that did to the culture of marriage within first century Jewish society? Made it pretty dysfunctional. This was part of the dawn blessings, blessings that men regularly prayed uh, to, to, their, to their God. Uh, all this is very cringe-worthy worthy stuff. The Mishnah is a set of Jewish oral translations, and it said things like women were not qualified to testify in court, and so on. Now look, this is crazy stuff from our, from our, from, from our, our point of view, but it was thoroughly ingrained in the culture back then. So, Jesus turns this entire ancient culture upside down by appearing to the women first. First of all, Luke uh, mentions over two dozen women in only His gospel. Now, look, if, if in the ancient world you're trying to write something that a lot of people would read, you would not include the women in there because in that culture they were regarded as, as being pretty insignificant. Luke includes many women. Women play an important role at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the the Gospels. Think of it this way. The Gospel of Luke begins with Anna prophesying about Jesus on the Temple Mount. The book of Luke ends with Jesus appearing first to women. The Gospel of Luke is bookended by ministries of women. And then in the very middle, sort of in the middle, in the early middle. We have Luke 8, 1 through 3, where women are mentioned as being followers of Jesus, and some of these women are very prominent women. For instance, uh, Joanna is the wife of Chusa. Chuza was in the household, upper echelon part of the household of Herod, Antipas. Um, Historians tell us that he, he was the manager of his real estate holdings, which were extensive. So, Joanna and Shusa were living a very, very wealthy, prominent life. She becomes one of Jesus' main female followers. The Gospel of Luke is bookended by the ministries of women, and they're featured in the center. I, I just have to tell you, from a literary standpoint, Luke is saying something that was absolutely radical in the ancient world. And top it all off, Jesus reveals Himself to the women first. Now, don't get me wrong. The Great Commission goes to the twelve disciples, but the women tell the disciples where to go to get the commission. They pray. They, they play a prominent leadership role, and I will tell you that this was really radical um, in, in the ancient world. Now, Here's the point. The point is God's work is typically not fulfilled by the proud. God loves to empower the underdogs. How many of you, you can or maybe don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, how many of you say, you know what, I love to root for the underdogs? I love to root for the underdogs. Now, no, nobody's raising your hand. That's, the, that, that's okay. But I, I know a lot of people who, who say, that's me. I love to root for the underdog. I love to see people who have no chance do well and then, and then win. Now, we don't really believe that in the 21st century evangelical subculture. Why? Because uh, we take ex-NFL players and ex-NBA players and ex-professional golfers who come to Christ and we feature them to give their testimony and thousands of people come and, and, and we think people are attracted to fame God's value system is different. God's value system is He loves to exalt and bring up the humble. He loves to transform the unknown, the underdogs and the humble, and lift up those who ordinarily would not be lifted up any other way. You know, the Christian faith, as I always say, is exploding in the non-Western world. It's exploding in what we call today the majority world. And there are millions and millions of people in the majority world who are doing amazing things for God, who do not have any title professionally. They don't have a life insurance policy. They don't have a retirement account. They don't have a car. They don't own much beside what they have on their their body, and they're doing astonishing things for God, amazing things god in his economy loves to lift up and raise up those people who are humble if you want the antidote to the jonah spirit it's going to begin with significant humility if you see a jonah spirit inside you and i hope at some level you do the antidote to that is humility that says god my value system is screwed up you love To raise up the humble. In fact, it says, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. You can be one of those people who says, i got my goals right here. I'm going to accomplish my goals. I'm going to systematically get these goals ticked off. i got my bucket list in life. I'm going to tick off these things in my bucket list. I'm going to do these things. They're on my list. They're on my refrigerator. I think about these things all the time. You're doing all the right things to accomplish your goals. What does God say if those goals are pridefully derived? Uh, I'm opposed to the proud. I'm not giving you the power to get those things done. I give grace, I give power to the humble. The antidote to the Jonah spirit, for starters, is that God gives a different kind of power to a different kind of person. Now, as the story continues, we uh, look at how the power comes That's the second big question here. How does the power come? Well, God does not traffic in worldly power. God uses supernatural power. Verse 3, an angel of the Lord, um, after the earthquake, uh, descended from heaven and came down and rolled back the stone and sat on it, and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. Go back to the scene with the women and they're rounding the bend, not knowing what they're going to find there. And when they arrive at the scene of the empty tomb, what they're immediately conscious of is the supernatural. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an, an experience where you're just immediately conscious of the supernatural. It's happened to me on some occasions where in Cuba and in Russia and some other times where we encountered something and you thought, wow, I mean, that was an example of the supernatural showing up in our midst right here. I encountered that in some of our healing prayer sessions here. I love it when that happens. Well, these women encounter the supernatural. Now, immediately we face a problem because exactly how many angels were there and a lot of people will use this as evidence that the bible is wrong in mark's account one angel is mentioned he's in the tomb in matthew's account there's one angel he's outside the tomb in luke's account there are two angels they're outside the tomb in john's account there seems to be an unspecified number uh, and the women think that he may have taken the body away I've I've heard this argument so many times. um, The Bible's got all sorts of errors because uh, like there's different numbers of angels recorded to be outside the tomb. And I hear that, that and I think, okay, there are good answers to that question, but you've missed the point. The point is these are angels showing up, angels showing up, who uh, don't Operate like our physical bodies do. They have the ability to appear and disappear at will and appear in different places. There's a great illustration of this if you read C.S. Lewis's uh, book called Out of the Silent Planet. I've, I've read Lewis's book three times. I love this book, in part because of the way he describes angels and the supernatural quality of angels and how angels can be in one place and then another place quickly moving from place to place. I have no problem with the different numbers here. But even if you want the answer, the answer is that there are two angels. One rolled away the stone, one welcomed Jesus when He came out of the tomb, and because they're supernatural, they're appearing in different places at different times. But the point of the the whole story is this. The women feel a profound sense of, of the supernatural. Think about this. The angels are there, supernatural. Jesus is obviously present, but he hasn't revealed himself to him yet. The Holy Spirit is there. How do we know that? Romans 8:11 says that the Holy Spirit was instrumental in raising Jesus from the dead. The presence of the Father is there, who also was present in raising Jesus from the dead. This was a profoundly supernatural place profoundly supernatural event so this is the place that is at this moment pulsating with spiritual power and i want you to imagine this from the guards perspective you know the guards have been vigilantly guarding the tomb they've got their weapons they've got the roman seal nobody but nobody is going to mess with the guards And um, then dawn comes, the earthquake hits, the guards steady themselves, and then to their gasp they see the stone being rolled away. Now, the the word for the placement of the stone in Mark suggests that the stone was flung away. Have you ever taken a Frisbee and flung the Frisbee? How, How much effort does it take to fling a Frisbee? Well, some, but hardly any, like whew. And that thing goes. And at some level, the the guards saw a supernatural event where a 2,000-pound, one-ton stone is just flung away from the tomb. And they look back and see movement in the tomb, and they bolt immediately, uh, rushing into town. Now, this is really ironic. I want you to think about this. The guards and the women. The guards and the women. The power that drove the men to run is the same power that drove the women to their knees in worship. You see that? Supernatural power causes fear among the men who were strong. It causes worship among the women who were reputed to have been weak by their culture. Think about it this way, the same power that drove the men to fear, like they became like dead men, like cringing in fear, drove the women to intense joy. Same power, different impact because of a different relationship with God. Guards, none, women, pretty powerful. The same power that produces resurrection life in Jesus is the power that caused the men to feel like dead men. There's a very conscious contrast between the women and the guards. Who ends up looking stronger in this account? The women do. Who ends up looking more devious? The men do. And the point of the story for us is if you're going to be used by God to meet the needs of people, you have to have a sense of God's supernatural presence already around you. We, we Westerners really forget this. Um, I took this picture of the Wi-Fi signals in an office building. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do I have a camera that can, that can look at Wi-Fi signals and, and, and see those? Well, I know somebody's trying to develop that kind of thing, but invisible things are very real. Um, those Wi-Fi signals, well, you, you walk in the midst of Wi-Fi. Have, have, have you ever kind of gone, these Wi-Fi signals are really, like, they're really intense today. I have to, I have, they're like spaghetti around me. I've got… No, you've never, you've never done that. You can't see those things, but they're very real. Radio waves are very real. TV signals are very real. X-ray rays, very real. Infrared light, very real. You don't see them Therefore, if you are going to acknowledge the supernatural, you must do it by faith. I want you to think about what your eyes can see. This is, uh, uh, I'm sorry that it, this is so small. I tried to make it as big as I could. You see that shaded black area in the middle of the chart? That is the only portion of the light spectrum that you can see. That's represented in the rainbow up above. Can you see infrared? No. Can your TV see infrared? hey, look at this, I got this cool thing here, this, this remote, and it, it connects with the computer via infrared. I, did, do I see the, the, the line going down to the computer? I can't see that. Um, you can't see ultraviolet, but guess who can see ultraviolet? Bees can see ultraviolet. Snakes can see ultraviolet. No problem for them. So, are things real that you cannot see? Of course they are, We've proven that scientifically. You depend upon that practically in your life. So, for you to access the supernatural means you must do it by faith. Now, why is this so hard for us? Because we Westerners, even though we know things that are invisible are real, don't like to live in that when it comes to spiritual things. We live in a a dichotomized thinking. Oh, the scientific is real, but the spiritual things, oh, maybe not, maybe not. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you want to, the antidote to the Jonah spirit, I want to encourage you. You must live in the supernatural by faith, by faith. Like you wake up in the morning and you encounter it, you, you encounter it by faith. I would say that a huge part of of living in a discipleship relationship with somebody else is encountering the supernatural. Um, Remember that Jonah was dismissive of the supernatural in Jonah chapter 1. You know, God says, go to Nineveh. He says, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going. I'm going to sleep during this storm. And Jonah was contemptuous of the supernatural in Jonah chapter 4. God, I can't believe, can't believe you intervened down there in Nineveh. So mad at you for doing that. He was dismissive and he was contemptuous. Very easy for us to do that with the supernatural. I'm urging you that you live a lifestyle where you recognize the supernatural. Number one, that it's all around you. Number two, that the Spirit is inside you. And number three, that God has divine appointments for you throughout the day. We had an encounter in North Africa where I really wanted my son and daughter-in-law to meet a couple that I've gotten to know uh, through an organization here in Bartlesville. I wanted that to happen. Emailed, saw, no, not going to happen. And then I got a phone call from this couple who said, hey, we had to make a kind of an emergency trip up to Casablanca and we're going to be coming through your city can we we meet with you guys yes well it just so happened that some other members of my my son's team were were there and I got to connect this whole group with this couple and the the way the conversation went I thought oh god this is so incredible (laughs) like you engineered something that I tried to engineer and couldn't do it and you made it happen That's recognizing when the supernatural is being being poured out in your midst. Now, now we shift to a different kind of power, the power of His presence to the power of His message, all right? We're still talking about power, power of His presence, now the power of His message. Jesus offers a different kind of a message. Notice that there are two messages that, that are going to be given here in Matthew chapter 28. The guards, the guards come up with a humanistic message. The guards bolt out of that scene, they go back into the city, they go back to the chief priests, and they confess what took place. That tomb is empty, that tomb is open, and we don't know what to do. What's your plan? Well, this was very bad news. They come up with a plan. False news is this. Those pesky disciples, they came and they took the body while we were sleeping. Are we ever bad? Are we bad? We were sleeping. Disciples took the body. And that's their good news. Wait, what's what's the good news? The good news is we don't have a resurrected savior to bother us. We don't have a transformative son of God to make us different. It's a, it's a false good news that they're getting paid to perpetrate. False good news. Now, there are many, many false good newses out I know good newses is it's a little bit difficult, the plural part of that, but go with me on this. There are a lot of false good newses out there these days. Richard Dawkins uh, recently... Um, <clears throat> Dawkins, as you probably know, is Oxford University, reputedly a very smart zoologist who's an atheist. And what Dawkins says is this, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But he's stating that as good news. Why? Because I'm not accountable to a holy God who designed the very eyes that allow me to observe this universe that supposedly has no design. That's, that's a false good news. There's a lot of other false good newses out there that are trivial, trivial good news is like how to be happy. I, I like being happy, but... Many times, happiness is presented as a false good news. How to be healthy. I like being healthy, but, you know, okay, so great, I'm healthy. Anything transcended after that? Um, There's a lot of micro instances of good news. These women receive a message of a fundamentally different order. It's a message of liberation and joy. The angel addresses the women: do not be afraid. I know you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. This is a threefold good news message. Number one, Jesus is risen, just as he said. The whole point of his rising was to prove that he had solved our sin problem, our root problem, our most basic human problem. Secondly, we got an empty tomb, which was great because if anybody doubted it, they could go to the tomb and say, "Uh, there's a body there, or no, there is no body there. And I know that tomb is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Third part of the message is they have a future with Jesus, an immediate future and a long-term future. Immediate being, we're going up to Galilee, we're going to see him up there, and a long-term future, eternal life. So these women were expected in in the very near future to walk 90 miles up to Galilee where Jesus would reveal himself to them. What do you suppose the women are going to be doing along the way, talking about Jesus, whom they are going to see up there in Galilee? They've got good news that's a true good news consisting of a message of hope proof of that hope and a future of joy let's let's compare this a little bit with jonah remember jonah's message short judgmental he walks he speaks yet 40 days nineveh will be destroyed eight words and he walks only saying those eight words and then It's a three-day journey to saturate the city. He only goes through there one day and, ah, forget it. Forget about it. I'm going up into the hills. Let's see what happens. That's not a very compelling message. There's no heart to that message. What do the women have? Humble people are given the privilege of being the first to see the resurrected Christ. And they're given a message of hope with a future. So who gets the power? The humble. How does the power come? It comes in the presence of the supernatural. Final question. When does the power come? When does the power come? Well, <clears throat> uh, Jesus empowers the women in the context of desire. Desire context of of desire. Here's the rest of the story. The women rush through the streets of Jerusalem. They go to the place where the disciples are located. Don't know exactly where that was. It might have been Mary's house, the house where they celebrated the Last Supper. They knock on the door. It's early. The disciples come. One comes, then several more come, and the women are talking about an empty tomb, and the stone rolled away, and the body not being there, and it's all very rushed, and it's, it's intense, and it's loud, and the disciples have just woken up, if I wake up my wife with loud, excited words, she does not appreciate that. And I've learned, if I want to say something to Cindy, I go down, I make her a cup of coffee, I bring the cup of coffee up with three drops of stevia and one little thing of orange essential oil. I mix it around. I take it up there. I put it on a saucer. I say, sweetheart, I got your coffee. I let her drink about half of it. And, and then, now, sweetheart, i got to tell you something. And she's ready. These disciples were, were irritated. They were irritated. Um, and, and Luke says it seemed like an idle tale. The Greek word for this says it means the talk of a sick patient delirious from pain. I'm not saying the women communicated that way, I'm saying that's how the disciples perceived their communication. The talk of a sick patient, delirious from pain. Peter's impulsivity immediately kicks in. He bolts out of the house, he bolts down to the tomb, he start, John then John starts running, the rest of the disciples follow as well. Now you have 11 passionate men who are running to the scene of the tomb. And they witness it for themselves. But here's the deal. The men go, wow, and walk back to their homes. The women linger at the tomb, wanting to be there, be present in what was that supernatural place. Jesus appears in Mary Magdalene first. She's the least of all the women, socioeconomically and spiritually. First she wonders who shows up. Then Jesus calls her by name, Mary. And she uses this amazing term, Rabboni, which means my great teacher. This is a word of worship. The disciples bolt. They leave. The women linger. And they linger in an attitude of worship. I love this picture because it pictures the attitude of humble Mary Magdalene, the most socioeconomically under-resourced probably member of that team. And she approaches Jesus in worship. Jesus also appears to the other women uh, in in the garden. Matthew 20, verse 9, Jesus comes up to them, and He says, greetings. They fall on their knees, hugging His ankles. When they look down, what would they see? The latest, you know, Nike shoes? What are they they seeing when they're looking at His feet? You know, these awesome Chaco sandals? They're seeing the nail prints in His feet. And you suppose after they saw those nail prints, they hugged those feet even more? Pretty sure they did. I don't think resurrected feet stink. Just I'm just thinking they they, they probably probably don't. And they the the point is they're worshiping they're worshiping the Lord and and Mary obeys the commission that Jesus gives. The commission is I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. When does Jesus give this give this commission? Well, He gives us commission after the disciples ha- had left, and, and they're instructed to go to Galilee. Well, here's a picture of Mount Arbel in Galilee. By the way, if you go on the Israel trip, we see Mount Arbel. I can't say this for sure, but I think this is the place where Jesus gave His great commission. How did the disciples know to go to that place? The resurrected Christ told the women... And the women would have been the ones who told the disciples. But when when did they receive this? In the context of worship, in the context of worship. And the thing is, if you want to receive input from the God of the universe, it happens in the context of worship. It happens in the context of waiting on God, and you can't hurry it. I've said this before, but I mean, if I go to my grandkids and I say, guys, we got five minutes. I want quality time with you, all right? Come on, shape up. Let's have some quality time. What does that do to a little kid? I'm scared. I don't even know what to do now. Like, how, how do I even begin to have quality time? It's when you have lavish quantities of time that quality time serendipitously shows up. So the women receive a commission that was indispensable to the leadership of the men and they received it first. So how do you become better than Jonah? Well, you reject the Jonah spirit. And how do you do that? Well, God loves to empower the humble. God loves to empower the worshipful. And God loves to empower those who live in the supernatural. I hope we are a, a, a congregation that is rejecting the Jonah spirit and embracing the, the spirit of these humble ones that encountered the supernatural at the empty tomb of the resurrected Christ. Let's stand for our closing prayer. Father in heaven, we, we bow before you right now and, and just... Uh, gratitude for the fact that you have done so many great things in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who live in the presence of the supernatural 24-7. That becomes the ingrained habit of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.